Listener Production. This week, it's just family. My guest is Antoinette Latouf, co-host of The Briefing Podcast, whose new book, How to Lose Friends and Influence White People, has just hit the shelves. Antoinette's parents came to Australia as refugees from Lebanon. She grew up in Western Sydney, where Antoinette encountered racism firsthand and was made to feel terribly alone. Perhaps it was those early experiences that meant she would go on to co-found Media Diversity Australia and become an advocate for equality. My name is Jamila Rizvi and welcome to The Weekend Briefing. Up next, Bron and I will be here with The Weekend List where we recommend what to watch, see, do, eat and listen to this weekend. But first, here is my conversation with our very own Antoinette Latouf. And a quick warning that this interview does include mention of postnatal depression and anxiety and suicidal ideation. Antoinette Latouf, welcome to the weekend briefing. It's so lovely to see your smiling face and it's not, you know, four in the morning like when you usually do the briefing. I know, I did get a few extra hours of sleep and I'm so excited about our chat today. Yeah, me too, me too. Look, let's start at the beginning and when I say the beginning, I mean the beginning for briefing listeners, which is actually not that long ago. Tell me about how you came to be working with us and what it's been like for you moving into the early mornings of podcasting. As you would know, Jamila, I've been a journo for some years. Jan Fran and I were actually friends at university. We um, moved in the same circles. We're from the same community. Um, And so Jan one day said, I know you do a million things um, and you're already busy, but do you want to come in and do some filling in? Um, So I started doing that while I was still doing my TV job and writing my book and doing a bunch of other stuff. Um, I think it was why Tom Tilly was on paternity leave last year. That was just more of a casual dip in and out and I really enjoyed it. And then I was approached more formally this year to say, hey, you felt like a natural fit in the family. Do you want to come and join? It's been great. I mean, I do not love waking up early. I don't think I will ever get into it. (laughs) I didn't enjoy waking up for my children um, and so that's been difficult. But other than that, I really I really enjoy hearing from our listeners. Um, I love working with the crew. They're a really talented, great bunch of people. Did you always want to be a journalist? Oh, yeah, definitely. It was something I told my mother when I was five or six. A lot of people have those conversations when they're young. Like when I grow up, I want to be this, that or the other. But mine was so specific and also mine was in a world, you know, in the world I grew up, both of my parents were only educated till they were eight and nobody I knew was a professional or went to university. So it was I mean, it's always ambitious, I think, to want to be a professional, but it was especially ambitious because I'd never met a journalist. I'd never met a lawyer. I'd never met an architect. I'd never met anybody who'd been to university and had a profession, but it was just something I knew I was going to do. So tell me about your parents and how they came to Australia in the 70s. My parents are both Civil War refugees. Mum in particular came from a village, a really tiny village, uh, but a village that was divided on religious grounds, religious and sectarian grounds, when the Civil War began. And they were Lebanese refugees, yes. is that right? Yes, yep, Lebanese refugees. And so mum went from having a lovely childhood where the village community was beautiful and everybody was well connected till religious partisans split, really dividing families that were once best friends simply on the grounds of who was Christian and who was Muslim. And so there was one instance in which 
a neighbour came to my mother's family and said, the militia's coming and let it be known, the militia on both sides were doing awful things because in war, everyone's a victim and the perpetrators come in all shapes and sizes. The militia on both sides were doing awful things to anybody who was not one of them. And a neighbour came to mum and said, to mum's dad more specifically, and said, the militia's coming and rounding up all the Christian families in the village, come and hide in our house. We'll hide you. It kind of re- reminded me of when I learned this, the stories I heard about Anne Frank in World War II. Yeah. And so then another family intervened and said, no, come and stay with us. She's rounding up the families to be killed. And so my, my mum's dad had to, my grandfather, my late grandfather, who I never met, had to make a decision, like, who's telling the truth? He ended up going with the one who intercepted the second time and it turns out that saved them because the first family truly was rounding up people to be killed. Oh, my God. And the beautiful other family were like, no, no, please come with us. Um, and they did. And then they fled. Um, you know, the, the usual with the clothes they were wearing, without a dollar to their name. It sounds a little bit cliche, but I just imagine how terrifying that was. And at that point, mum thought she was getting on a plane to go to America. She'd never heard of Australia. So then she turns up in this country and she's like, what? What is this? Where am I? And yeah, so that's how that's how she got here. How aware were you growing up of your parents' history? I asked a lot of questions. And so I, I became more and more aware. Mum had brothers that never made it to Australia and I wanted to know why and how and how they died and they died young. And so I remember a story mum told me when I was maybe 11 or 12. I was complaining about something in my life. I don't know, like I didn't like the colour of my shoelaces or whatever a 12-year-old's real issues are. And she told me, she's like, do you know what I was a teenager? Do you know what I was doing? I was rummaging through bodies to find survivors. You know, I think she just been really frustrated with me being, you know, with my first world problems. And so I was like, what? And I stopped her there and she explained how that there was a, a bomb at the local mosque and she was there rummaging through trying to find survivors. And so my mum's a very, a very strong woman who doesn't show a lot of emotion because I think she's lived through so much. She's seen people be killed. She's had siblings die very young. Um, her father died very young. So, yeah, so trauma and bloodshed was very much part of growing up and I was always fascinated by, by those stories. I thought, well, that's not, I never hear that. So I, I, I became super fascinated with Australians. I used to call them new Australians there if there's a, any way to make you feel any more othered. Did you feel othered? Tell me about what it was like for you growing up. You've obviously got your experience within your own family and you've got a different experience within that to your parents' generation and to their parents' generation. But living in Australia, growing up around, let's face it, mostly white kids, what was that like for you personally? In primary school, I went to a school in a working class area in the Western suburbs. We were sprinkled with kind of different colours, but it was largely Anglo families. And there was a lot of blatant racism in the 80s when I was in primary school. But Often it was just repeated. There's something I actually mentioned in my book that stuck with me till this day. Everybody was invited to a birthday party in the class except for me. And this girl was my friend, Jenny. I remember her. Uh, And I remember this conversation vividly and she said to me, oh, I'm sorry I can't invite you. Mum said, I can't invite you because you're Arab and you guys aren't to be trusted. Um, And I was just like, what? And she was literally just repeating what her mother had said. Yeah. That intensified as I got into high school because the September 11 attacks happened. There was a task force set up in New South Wales, literally called the Middle Eastern Crime Squad. There was this horrible gang rapists who were of Middle Eastern lineage 
But what's different for if an awful crime is committed by a white person, it doesn't besmirch the entire white community and the entire white community isn't asked to condemn the attacks of some random awful teenagers, which is what we were expected to do. Then the Cronulla riots happened. So it's actually really hard to be an Arab person, especially an Arab person from the Western suburbs, from a working class background, between 2001 to probably 2015. And then it was the so-called African Games. And I know a lot of that took off in Melbourne. It was really awful. I would, when people would ask what cultural group I was from or would he speak Arabic, I would literally see them take a step back or just be unsure of what to say next. You know, some, some would be like, oh, that's okay. I'm like, no, I didn't apologise. I'm just telling you where I'm from. It was difficult. Your very brand new book, congratulations, uh, How to Lose Friends and Influence White People is out now, available at all the good bookstores, everyone, not the bad ones, uh, just the good bookstores. Um, talk to me about how your own childhood informed the book and why it was that as a journalist with all the topics in the world that you could have covered, you chose to write about race. It's one of those things that so many people of colour wish we didn't have to talk about. We would love to be good journalists and great podcast hosts and great athletes. It's difficult to be part of an institution of power that is part of the problem when it comes to race and equality. So I went in and I remember going, I'm going to be the editor of Time magazine because then it was very much you were either a print journalist or on television. I had no interest in broadcast. I just thought I wanted to write and that was going to be my thing. About 10 years into my career, so I kind of dropped out, or dropped out, went and birthed children <laughs> and would come back in. And then I got to around the 10-year mark and I looked around me at my peers who had remained in the industry, who were there from the beginning, and I realised that the very few people of colour in the media, and, and it's, Jamila, to be fair, there are a few of us, yourselves, myself, Jan, yeah. we can kind of, kind of count them on one hand that are, are kind of prominent people of colour in the media. We're plentiful in the briefing. We are not plentiful <laughs> beyond the briefing. Exactly, exactly. So, and I got to about, yeah, year 10 and I looked around and I saw that so many journalists of colour had left the industry entirely and that who had started with me, who were white, had gone on to have illustrious careers. And some may argue, oh, well, they're just better. You know, maybe the other people didn't have what it took. Maybe they, they weren't cut out for this. And so my girlfriend, Isabel, who's Chinese-Australian journal, worked in CNN and lived in New York and London and kind of came to me and said, something's going on in the media industry. We're part of the problem. And so we went out, we, we reached out to these journos who had left the industry and said, hey, like, why? Where, where are you and why? And some, one or two were legitimately like, I've had a change of heart and now yoga is my calling. And then for other people, it was like, well, I faced overt discrimination. I couldn't handle the microaggressions. I was really stifled by the coverage of my community or the, or the way I was asked for my expertise around my community, usually when it was populist or demonised. Uh, and so many of them left because they didn't feel that the media was a safe space for them to be, let alone a safe space for their community group to be reported on. So as you do when you're uh, super busy and have no time, you take on more work. So I kind of hit a fork in the road where I thought I'm either going to leave the industry because I understand how problematic mm. the media can be in perpetuating and maintaining racism 
um, and particularly targeting and demonising certain groups, be they African, the populism and the fear campaigns around Chinese, you know, Chinese international students are taking our jobs or, you know, the commercial networks, they're buying all of our baby formula. And so whether it was Chinese, African, Muslim, Indian, we just, it, it was across the board that the media played a really significant role in either challenging or perpetuating racism. And I thought, oh, I can't just like be complicit. Yeah. I either want to fix it or I'm going to leave. So it really, it really came down to either wanting to fix the problem or helping to be part of the solution or exiting, like the many before me who had just gone, this is just, this is unfair, this is not right, I'm out. So I didn't want to and I would love to not have to. And it's an extra burden and challenge that we take on and it's extra critique and criticism that we take on when we dare to enter this. And that's part of the title of my book, How to Lose Friends and Influence White People, because it makes you unpopular in Australia, because we all love to think that Australia is a beacon of multiculturalism. We've got this shit sorted. We don't know what you're complaining about. Indigenous people just need to get over it. And if you dare challenge that, if you dare challenge anti-Blackness or the racist attitudes that many of our media the products of our media, either consciously or unconsciously put out, you'll be attacked and maligned and trolled. I explore the experience of Adam Goods, Yumi Steins, Yasmin Abdul-Majid, to highlight those who've dared to come before me and challenge it and what's happened to them. As a bit of a cautionary tale to be like, go into this eyes wide open. It's not necessarily going to be easy. Here's how to manage the fallout, if I was to summarise my book. Tell me what it was like for you at a personal level watching the attacks on those three individuals play out in the media. Because as you say, you're at a different vantage point from a lot of other people of colour because when you're watching the demonisation of Adam Goods or how some elements of the print media treated Yasmin Abdul-Majid in particular, how Yumi Stein's career was destroyed because of one thing she said wrong and yet most journalists are given, you know, ample opportunity to make something, some kind of error, and I use inverted commas when I say error, uh, and you get the opportunity to bounce back. She was sort of one strike and you're out, not three or ten strikes. As a fellow journalist watching that play out, Did you feel scared or did you feel angry? I felt both scared and angry. At the time when Yasmin Abdul-Majid in particular was happening, we were just formalising Media Diversity Australia. I had two young children under the age of four. I wanted desperately to say something, but I was petrified. I didn't feel that I had the power and the voice to come out of it, to survive it. And it was a conscious decision. It's also something I talk about in my book. And I I, I later reached out to Yasmin and apologised, not to be vindicated, not to be not for her to wash away my sins, but just to say, I own it. And in this, I was, in this experience, in your experience, I wasn't an ally because I was scared. I was scared of what it would do to my career. I was scared of what it would do to my mental health. And so, yes, angry, but also not confident enough to pop my head up and take a risk. In writing this book, and I write it also in my book, I prepared to lose my job. At the time of writing my book, I was at Channel 10. I'd resigned myself like I was comfortable. If I lost my job, I was cool because if my employer had a problem with what I knew, like the fact that I knew I was on the right side of history, then I no longer wanted to work there. As it just turns out, I had other opportunities and left 10 on very good grounds and I may one day return. But it's really unfair that we have to get to a point where we're like, okay, our livelihoods and our safety, let's just accept that they are both at risk and then move forward. So I've taken myself off the electoral roll. I've used the services of the digital security expert to look at my online safety to ensure that me and my kids can't be located. 
I deliberately don't share photos of my children on social media. These are all strategic decisions I've had to make because I have learnt from what has happened to people like Yumi, Yasmin Abdul-Majid, who was driven out of the country. Yumi tells me at the worst of it, not only was she, had she had death threats and things sent to her house, but a random dude was harassing her kid at school. These have real-world implications and they, they silence people like us. And then they reward others who say the most objectionable, problematic things on air who then get promoted. Alan Jones, and I talk about this, Alan Jones has threatened violence against prime ministers, has suggested they get backhanded, they get thrown out to sea, they should shove socks down their mouths. He was found by ACMA to have helped incite the Cronulla riots against my community and it helps further that division. He just kept getting pay rises and then get put on another platform on another network. Yumi says one thing. Yasmin Abdul-Majid sends a seven-word post. She gets driven out of the country. This is not a meritocracy. This is not fair. This is a country that is petrified of looking at its reflection and its abhorrent issue with racism. And anybody who dares hold up a mirror to it, they will crack the mirror and try and break you before actually acknowledging that we have a problem that needs fixing. We've explored the how to lose friends part of the title of your book. We've done the first half. Talk to me about the influencing bit because influence to me, there's a level of deliberateness, strategy and tactics to the art of influencing and the idea of changing people's minds about race. I mean, you haven't attacked a small topic, have you? So if I've got a, you know, difficult uncle whose dinner party I'm at who is saying things I find inappropriate or someone's made a rude comment to my kid. How do we start to have these conversations, these difficult conversations, and actually change minds? Yeah, that's the the million-dollar question. And I'm glad you brought up the racist uncle. So this book is not just for people like yourself and I who are people of colour who have a a platform. It can be for a white teenage girl who's goes to a privileged private school and has a racist uncle. It can be to the employer who wants to know how to better cultivate the workplace and improve diversity and inclusion or somebody who wants to formalise anti-racism. Even with me, I learnt a lot in terms of what data shows works in conversation. Saying you and the person's name works a lot rather than I feel this and I'm the victim of this and this is how I've done. It's unfair on me. People are inherently selfish human beings. They want to know about them. They want to hear about themselves. And they want to hear about themselves. And some of it seems simple when you pull it back. You go, oh, yeah, smart people are just good at believing that they're right. And humour breaks down barriers. Facts alone don't work. Um, people are selfish and they want to hear about themselves. They are some of the tools that I explore in it. But my, my main takeaway is really be choosy about what you challenge because we all have a role to play whether we're white or black or somewhere in between like you and I, and it's just about ensuring we're in it for the long haul and not just when it's popular and performative. This isn't the only area where you've done some incredible advocacy work, though, Antoinette, and I want to touch on just a couple of other things that you have been loud and proud about and also influential about if we go back to our key words. Talk to me about becoming a mum for the first time and why you've become an advocate in the meantime, around perinatal mental health? Yeah, so I don't set out to be like poster child for perinatal mental illness, but I have certain experiences. I realise I'm in a privileged position and there was no one like me 
to talk about experience, a similar experience that they've had. And I think, oh, damn it, I'm going to have to step up and try and help those who come after me. So I've, I've mentioned, you know, I've come from a large Lebanese family where community values and family values are really sort of central to who we are and what we do. Mm. You know, food, family, togetherness, it's just it, it's just kind of the bedrock of our, of our culture and something I love that I wanted to replicate and emulate when having children. So I'd said, well, I'm going to have four kids. I'm one of seven. It's going to be great because I've been around kids and nephews and nieces my whole life. What I didn't, I guess, really reconcile was that before me, there'd never been somebody in my community or in my extended family who'd been a professional and both a mother. They were stay-at-home mothers or they had a family business or they had a very successful hair salon, but they were able to either work from home and very much still have home life and motherhood kind of key and central. And so when I had my first child and I never wanted to admit it, I was like, oh, how am I going to continue my career? Because it's really important to me and be a good mother. Anyway, so I didn't have the best kind of first start to motherhood. A lot of us don't. Yeah, exactly. Um, And so I was like, okay, but I grew to have a connection with my daughter and really loved it um, by about the four or five month mark. When I came to have my second child, the insomnia and anxiety that I had a little bit of with my first child came crashing down on me at about 37 weeks to the point that I was unable to function. I'd lost a lot of weight. I went to see a doctor. He was like, he just need a bit of sleep, gave me a sleeping aid, but it just continued to mount. And then the first night I was in the hospital, the anxiety was so bad that I didn't want to be there. I didn't want to hold her. I, I, I tried to leave the hospital as though leaving the hospital would help me escape the panic and the thoughts I was feeling. And then it just spiraled and got worse. It tipped, The anxiety and the insomnia then tipped into serious depression where I wouldn't you know, sleep, eat, shower, smile, couldn't stop crying had constant suicidal ideations and was just a shadow of who I am. And it, it kind of terrified everybody around me because they're like, what's going on? This is not you. You're so together and bubbly and, and happy and capable. I was completely incapable of looking after my child and looking after myself. That must have been really scary. It was beyond terrifying. It's the, it's the hardest thing I've, I've ever experienced. It's um, something I still manage. It's something that if I, you know, that still upsets me so much and I'm so guilt-ridden about the fact that I wasn't good at motherhood, that I wasn't as available to my daughter, that I started to question should I have ever had children. So that was really, really difficult. And then trying to turn around and get help, I, I went and saw a psychiatrist and was diagnosed and also saw a psychologist and had a lot of people around me helping me on my recovery. But I had a lot of criticism um, and there was a lot of stigma from my mother and my aunts and people in my community who would like just like harden up, your life is good. Everybody, you know, we've had proper hardship in our lives. Um, I don't know why this is happening. Stop talking, stop crying. And so it was the stigma of from or pray, you know, there's a you know, religion. And, you know, for some people prayer and yoga and meditation does do it for them, but mine was so acute I was close to being hospitalised. Yeah, you were sick. I was really sick. And so as I came out, as I started to recover, I would then get calls from a cousin's friend's next door neighbor's beautician. And they'd be like, oh, we heard this happen to you. Can you please speak to her? She's ashamed to tell her mother-in-law or she's ashamed. And so then I started just quietly helping random women I didn't really even know. They were part of my community, but I didn't actually know them. I knew people who knew people who knew them. Um, And then I thought, okay, well, there's something here. This is actually 
much more common. And then I wrote a piece for the ABC about the intergenerational, intercultural struggles I faced, which really compounded and made my grief and depression worse. And then I was contacted by so many women of colour, Indian women and Vietnamese women, and, and so many of them said, you, you pretty much are telling the story of me and my mother. You're pretty much talking to the, the taboo of getting psychiatric help, the calls for religion and faith to be your saviour. And then I was approached by the Gidget Foundation. At that point, I thought, oh, like these women see themselves in me and my story. And there was nobody for me. It was so isolating and I was so sad and I was so alone. And there wasn't anybody that made me feel better about it. Not better about it, but just not so alone. That solidarity is huge when you've been unwell. And I think, you know, you talked about uh, guilt and I think guilt starts to dissipate when you realise you're not the only one. Yeah. And so that's kind of why it, it's uh, it's in the same vein, I guess, as the uh, the advocacy I do with anti-racism in media. You know, when you are the first or one of the first, it, it can be terrifying or alienating or really unfair. I just thought, no, I have privilege and I talk about privilege in my book. I had none growing up as a povo kid from refugee parents, went to a public school with no money, didn't even have money for the correct school uniform. I wore something that was close to the correct school uniform that mum could find at the op shop. I have photos of, I'm like, oh, why am I wearing that? And now I've come a long way and I have relative privilege to little Antoinette. I felt I had a responsibility to help the future Jamilas and the future Antoinettes, be it that they have mental health issues, that they confront institutional structural racism, or they get treated abhorrently by sections of our populist press. Well, on behalf of the future Jamilas and Antoinettes, (laughs) thank you so much for your beautiful new book and also for sharing just a little bit of your life's story with us on the Weekend Briefing, Antoinette. Thank you so much. That's it for my conversation with Antoinette Latouf. Her book, How to Lose Friends and Influence White People, is available at all the good bookstores. Don't worry about the bad ones. Antoinette and I did touch on some heavy issues during that chat. So can I start by saying, I hope you're all okay. If our discussions did bring anything up for you, then please know that you can always call Lifeline on 13 11 14. And if you particularly want to talk to someone about postnatal depression and anxiety, then you can call Panda Monday to Friday, 9am till 7.30pm on 1300 726 306. Don't go away. The weekend list is coming up. Bron is here. It is weekend list time. And Bron, I hear on the grapevine, as in you just told me, you've been listening to a lot of podcasts and I am, I am in a podcast drought. So please help me. Well, first one I've got for you from our very own listener family, Just the Gist, with Rosie Waterland and Jacob Stanley, who they're both amazing. But their latest episode was about Sherry Papini which was incredible. So Just the Gist is a podcast. They give you enough information about a topic that you can go to a dinner party with. That's how they frame it. So in the last couple of weeks, this story has kind of unfolded more where she went missing, she's come back, and not everything was as it seemed. So they get right into the nitty gritty of what's happened and it is just a very interesting story. I am so pumped for that. I love Just the Gist and we have interviewed both Rosie Waterland and Jacob Stanley on The Weekend Briefing before. If you want to go back and dig into their episodes, that podcast 
podcast is well worth a listen any week and I am pumped for that particular episode. Bron, I'm going to match your excellent recommendation with an anti-recommendation. I'm going to anti-recommend something that's on Netflix at the moment. Mm-hmm. I know that the algorithm has been pushing it at me very hard and I fell victim to that urgent push from the algorithm. I'm not sure why I did, everyone. It is called Bullshit the Game Show and it's bullshit, guys. It's real bad. It is a really bad show. Uh, so the idea is that it's sort of a who wants to be a millionaire style game show, right, with quiz questions that are trivia, except the person who is answering can just have a guess. But if they can convince three other contestants that they actually know the answer and they, they knew the answer and that their incorrect answer was actually true by bullshitting, then they get to stay in the game. So they can stay in even if they get multiple questions wrong so long as they are convincing and I quite liked the setup I was sort of I was like oh that sounds sort of fun I assumed it'd be like a little bit comedy would I lie to you sort of vibes it's not guys it's real bad just skip it skip that one it is awful I watched I fell victim to as well it was not good at all do better for us Bron what else have you got next one is another podcast um decodering so their latest episode they've done one uh called the sideways effect which is about how the movie Sideways came out, which I think like was decades ago, but it actually affected the sales of Merlot because in the movie, someone says, I'm not going to drink effing Merlot. And then all of a sudden sales in Merlot dropped no. from this very niche movie. So it kind of goes into, did the movie really affect Merlot sales or was there something else happening the whole time? It's it's just very, very wild. And, and the one before that was about the method, which is method acting. And it kind of goes into how what we think method acting is, isn't what it was originally named for. So I'm just learning a lot the last few weeks. Very, very interesting stuff going down. I'm really into this because I have always wondered why, particularly with wine, but with many things in my life, often (laughs) what I like just suddenly becomes not cool. Like Chardonnay was acceptable and then it was not. And then it was all about Savion Blanc for a while. And then suddenly it was like, no, who would serve such a thing at a party? I'm kind of into that idea. I am going to give you something to serve at a dinner party yourself, folks. I am a big fan of cooking, as you know. And I had some mates over the other night and I made Karen Martini's yogurt crusted roast cauliflower. Stay with me. I know it's a vegetable. I know it's always not the most exciting vegetable. I'm going to make it exciting for you. So you can get this on the Good Food website. It's a freebie. It's something so delicious to cook. It is visually really pretty (laughs) and it's also absolutely delicious. And if you are cooking for vegetarians or if you're vegetarian yourself, it's a really lovely replacement for meat because cauliflower's got that sort of substantial flavour. You cook it with butter and mustard seeds and garam masala and curry leaves. So it's got such a beautiful, rich flavour to it. And then it's got like a yogurt crust. So you cook the yogurt over the top of it in the oven and you've got yogurt and tomato and curry powder and turmeric over the top. It's just freaking delicious. I am considering making myself cauliflower centerpieces just when I'm at home at night on my own to go with some pizza. That sounds very yummy. 
That's it for the weekend briefing. I hope you all have a safe and beautiful weekend ahead of you. If you would like to make sure that you never miss an episode of the weekend briefing, then you can download the listener app now or you can hit follow or subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. Leave us a rating and review. You know what to do, but you probably haven't done it. So go back and leave us a rating and review, please. It will help other people to find this wonderful podcast. We will be back bright and early Monday morning where Tom and the team will have the latest headlines straight to your headphones. Listener.